Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Sunday morning at 9. Brought to you by PwC. On News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour as we talk to some more fascinating people around the world about stories making the news all across the globe and here in Ireland. Coming up on today's show, China correspondent Richard Spencer joins us to discuss the economic powerhouse's shifting fortunes. And to the Secret Service, he's known as the Mogul and she is the Muse. Donald J. Trump and Melania Knauss met in Manhattan in 1998 and they married seven years later. But who is the woman behind the man who's fighting to return to the White House? Well, the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the Washington Post and author of The Art of Her Deal, Mary Jordan, will be joining me to talk about Melania Trump. And finally, stay tuned with us as later in the show, John Mooney of the Sunday Times joins me to explore Ireland's role as a hub for dangerous drug cartels from all over the world. And as always, you can email me about any of today's items on takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, as China celebrated its new year in recent weeks, I wanted to see how the economic health of the country is. I suppose, in a wider sense, look at what their place is economically and politically in the world as we see it today. Has it bounced back from COVID uh, in recent years? Is it finally realising the demographic consequences of their one-child policy? And as some are asking, fundamental question, is the Chinese economic miracle over. Well, I'm delighted to be joined now by Richard Spencer, who's the China correspondent of The Times. Richard, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, Richard, 2023 was quite the year for China. We had lots of predictions that the economy would come roaring back after COVID-19. It didn't really happen. And China, indeed, booked the global trend in that sense. But maybe start with what the economy looks like as, as we're heading into 2024 now. I think my my standpoint here is it depends where you're coming from. And if you've been uh, sort of buying the Kool-Aid about China for the last 20 years, the, the Chinese economic miracle, China taking over the world, China about to overtake America as the largest economy of the world, then China is looking a pretty miserable place right now. Um, the economic indicators are not that great. Uh, it, it, it kind of did a, a bounce back from COVID in 2022, but... Uh, um, sort of only like we all did, you know, um, if you keep people at home for 12 months, then of course, they're going to go and spend uh, money buying the things they couldn't go out and buy during those 12 months. But it didn't really sort of take off in the way that we'd seen China take off in the in the 2000s and and at points during the, the, the teens, if you like. Um, and then last year was very sluggish. Uh, last the last year's growth uh, was about five point two percent, which sounds great from a European perspective. As I say, it all depends where you start from. But you know, China has been growing at an average rate of nine percent for the last twenty five years, and in many of those years, growth was up to sort of like thirteen, fourteen, even fifteen percent. You know, that real explosion that we've seen, and that just didn't happen. Mm. And uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. Mostly, um, the most obvious one is the property market. And the property market crashed last year. Uh, Quite a few property uh, real estate companies got into big problems. And these are really big companies. You know, this is China, which has, you know, uh, 1.4 billion people. And it's that many of whom live in bad accommodation and who've been buying modern apartment blocks hand over fist. And and the market crashed, so that had two effects. You know, lots of companies got into economic trouble. One of the biggest companies basically has now gone bankrupt. 
Uh, and of course, property prices in China, like everywhere else, if your property goes down in value by 10, 20, 30 percent, you're in negative equity or, or worse, if the property you've paid for off plan isn't delivered, then you're not going to go out and start spending money on new cars and and uh, expensive restaurant meals and all the other things you might spend your money on. So so the rest of the economy has also suffered from that. Mm. So the company you're referring to there is is Evergreen. And we saw um, a number of weeks ago that um, the, the company itself went bust. Um, and the consequences of the property market on the Chinese economy as a whole, you know, you, you've set out there. But maybe just if we could look into what that means for the effect of the internal economy in China, for example, like the effect that that has on people's daily lives and their access to property. It's something that we know a lot about here in Ireland. And in a piece that you wrote recently, you referred to lots of housing being built that's unused now, ghost estates as we would have known them here. So, um, yeah, just give us an idea of of how it looks like on the ground in, in China. Yeah, actually, you know, the island comparison for an economist is quite interesting because, you know, you've seen the same 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 process there. You know, the 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 boom, which was often, you know, built on debt, but also built on real fundamentals as well. You know, a, a very pro-business uh, environment that led to lots of investment coming in and, and leading to this sort of exuberance. Mm. And and um, and. And 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 how does that exuberance show itself? It always shows itself in property, right? Everyone wants to build a, you know, everyone wants to build more houses, sell them. It's easy to make profit on that, and people want to buy houses and have nicer houses, bigger houses, make money from selling houses, and and so on. And so that's the first bubble that always goes uh, wherever there's a crisis. But there's a there's a kind of difference between Ireland, which and China, which is size. You know, um, Ireland is a small country on the edge of Europe and by you know adjusting its macroeconomics slightly it can put itself in a different position regarding the you know the rest of the EU and it can take a bit of pain for a couple of years and then you know um, confidence can start coming back um, because because you know it's a, it's a small little um, country on the edge of a very very large trading block. Um, China is the very large trading block, and if it, if the whole country has suffered that bubble, then you know it's a much slower ship to turn round, mm. and that's the problem that the Chinese government has. You know, its property was got up to like thirty percent of GDP, um, which is you know the whole economy, which is an incredibly large amount. Uh, if that, you know, and 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 it was in some ways justifiable. As I say the housing stock in China was terrible until twenty years ago. People are living in really shoddy accommodation in the cities, and 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 very sort of poor local housing in the countryside. And there's been a lot of money to to actually improve people's living standards, which is great, and that has happened. Um, but if you build up to this, you know, thirty percent of your economy is 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 building flats and selling them. Um, and that goes badly wrong, then, you know, you're, you've got a problem on your hands. Yeah, it's very interesting, you know, when you explain it like that. I mean, it's almost a psychological shift you've got to make when you're talking about China. I mean, this is one of the major political and economic powerhouses when we're looking at the globe. So what happens there does have an effect on, on everyone else. And I suppose what I'm trying to get to is that we all just assumed that over the last 10, 15 years that, you know, 
China was going to remain that way. And, and really, it hasn't. And it hasn't had the recovery, as you said. One of the other areas that you look at uh, as your jumping off point in an article you wrote recently about this is the experience of young people in the Chinese society today. I mean, there was a point where a young graduate in, in any Chinese university could have expected to walk straight into a, a well-paying uh, and, and, and good job of uh, worth to them. And now the figures that you quote in, in terms of who actually even gets access to jobs is quite, is quite alarming. Maybe you just take us through some of those stories that you told in, in, your, in your piece recently. Yeah, so one of the things I was trying to get across in my piece was that, you know, we, know, we can't really think of China as like, you know, a simple market anymore. It's it's now it's now almost as big as America in terms of its economy. And just as in America, we can say, you know, you, you know, the situation if you're in California or if you work in Silicon Valley, you know, that that you know, American economy is very different than if you're talking about a sort of you know an old steel town in in Pennsylvania or Ohio. Um, and the same is true in China. Now, but the big problem for China, the really big problem, is that you know the 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 bit of the economy, the bit, the sector you would look at to say they should be doing well is the young people, and they're not, and that's that's really the biggest problem for China. So, you know, we've got this as you mentioned in your introduction, you've got this very very peculiar demographics in China because of the one-child policy. So, um, you have a very fast aging population. You have, um, you know, so the the, the one-child policy came in in nineteen eighty. That's a very sort of fairly simple thing to to think about you know anybody who is in their 40s and 50s there's there's uh, there's a lot of you competing for work in that in that set in that you know environment um and china was a very populous country obviously the most populous country in the world until now um so that sort of gave a great boost to the economy um but as china sort of you know changes becomes more developed specializes in 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 more modern jobs you know jobs in industry jobs in computers and information and and consumer services customer services you know this should be good for the young people this should should be great for the young people and because as i say the one child policy came in 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 1940 in 1980 basically your millennials your generation z your millennials people in their 20s and 30s there are fewer of them so so they should be you know they should be they should be sought after for all these new jobs in the new industries, um, but actually it's the youth unemployment that's the real problem. You know, twenty percent youth unemployment last year in China. That's kind of a very um, startlingly high statistic. Um, and I was speaking to um, you know university students, grad, people who are graduating this year, and in in you know sort of when I first started writing about China twenty years ago, they you know all the universities had these massive jobs fairs and the, the employers. I mean, from around the world, let's face it, but also these big Chinese companies would flock to the universities, grabbing anybody who they could to 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 fill the vacancies as the Chinese economy boomed. I mean, now these the, the kids leaving university this year, you know, they're not getting jobs. They're mm. not they're not being um, picked up like that, and and uh, and so they they they're kind of saying, what's going on? You know, even in elite universities in Beijing and Shanghai. Um, you know the, the 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 kids aren't getting jobs, and and that's a real puzzle. You know why is that? Why is it when when you know we think of China as the place that's investing in uh, AI and computers and smartphones and and you know new industries? Surely they need young graduates, but apparently they don't. And, and what does that say for the economy? 
why is that? Like, you know, surely they require people to be employed. Like, why aren't those people getting jobs? One reason um, is that uh, that figure that I gave you of, you know, 5.2 percentage uh, growth um, in the economy is is possibly misleading. I think it could be worse than that. Um Possibly because China does fix its figures a little bit like, you know, maybe all governments try and, you know, sort of massage their figures. But uh, in particular in China, I think it's misleading because, um, you know, China is still a, is still a very command and control mm. economy. Uh, you know, it's it's um, although, you know, there's it's been massively privatized since the era of Chairman Mao, you know, you still have these big state-owned uh, companies or state-led companies. Some of them have, have, uh, have, have you know, floated some shares on their stock exchanges, but they're still very led from the centre by polit- either by the, by the state or by local government that owns them or are directed by them. And uh, they have, you know, a strong impetus to keep, you know, growth going. They aren't particularly efficient uh and um there's a lot of you know make work that underlies the gdp those gdp figures um and the private sector which has really led the um you know some of the explosion that we've seen in Mm. in in some of the sort of you know more fashionable sectors i've talked about electronic um electric cars for example um, they have been reined in, uh, particularly the high tech companies have been reined in um, by the central government who thought they were getting too powerful by President Xi himself, in fact, very personally led by him. So 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 the big drivers of of these new of these of the new economy, the, 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 the private tech industries, the, the mobile phone gaming companies, for example, the um, the, uh, the the app companies, the the online sales company um, Alibaba, which is a sort of Amazon for for China, a big online sales place. They've all they've all had their um, their wings clipped by the central government because they're getting too powerful. So that's that provides a big disincentive to to hire lots of new people if you don't know whether you're really going to be allowed to invest. Really, um, you know, the ten cent, the biggest. Uh, mobile phone app and gaming company uh, was stopped by the government from from floating its shares on the New York Stock Exchange, for example. Um, and if you if you're working in that environment, um, you're not going to be hiring huge numbers of people. Mm. You don't know quite what the uh, yeah and what and, the business's environment is going to look like. And that's what business demands. Really, it is that certain pathway and you know a bit of stability yeah. and, and knowing what lies ahead of them. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the demographics thing again, maybe from maybe from a different perspective. So if we look at the reducing economy and even if those figures um, are not correct, they're still not the growth rates that, that China would want. So um, maybe there's something to look at outside of China and also internally, but outside, you know, I think COVID gave this kind of realisation globally that maybe a lot of countries were far too dependent on imports from China and maybe we have an element of nearshoring here or, you know, you know, getting their supply chains closer to home. And added to that, and this is why the demographic question is interesting, if you look at on the domestic market, I can't quite understand why they can't kind of... Um, have a stimulus of their own from within, if you like, with such a huge population? Or are the demographics or the demographic behaviour there uh, still dwindling and still reducing? Yeah, very good questions. And, um, you know, there are many different answers, actually, um, all of which sort of 
go to the same general point, which is um, that, you know, it's much easier to make big economic shifts um, if, if, as a government. If you want to sort of, you know, change the economic thrust of your um, country, much easier to do it when your population is growing and your economy is growing very fast. And a lot of people, um, people much more expert on this uh, than me, um, say, you know, that is the opportunity that China has dangerously missed. Um, you know, the there's been this huge investment in um, infrastructure, in industry, all good, uh, you know, has led to this amazing economic growth. Uh, but at some point, you can't just carry on producing cheap goods to, mm. for the rest of the world to buy because the rest of the world is going to say, you know, hang on, we, we, we can't watch all our industries close down just because this vast country uh, in the Far East is, um, you know, undercutting us on everything just by having, um, you know, heavily subsidized factories producing mass goods um, that the Chinese don't want to buy at cheap costs because they have cheap labor. Uh, and you're seeing countries like America put on tariffs on Chinese goods. You're putting, uh, seeing the EU considering putting more tariffs on Chinese goods. Um, and, you know, there's an obvious answer to that, which is that, you know, that's a great model if you're a growing country and people say, well, they're really poor. You know, mm. you know, let's put our factories there. Let's provide employment to, to, to the Chinese and we can get cheap goods and it's a win-win for everyone. Until you get to a situation where Chinese is... China is, you know, is a, is vastly overrepresented in the world's, you know, manufacturing industries and export industries, and its consumers sit, are massively under, you know, represented. You know, it's fine if 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 uh, you know if if China is exporting cheap cars to everyone, uh, cheap electric cars to everyone, and importing, you know, Western services, Western banking services or, um, you know, whiskey or whatever it is that we make and try to sell to them. But if that's only going one way, that, yeah. that's um, a problem for global trade. And China um, should be and should have been investing in its consumers. It should be, uh, you know, raising wages for its workers so they can afford to spend more on, you know, cars and luxury goods themselves. Mm. And uh, that's what's not happened. And now the demographics have gone into reverse. Now, now uh, the, the, you know, the population is shrinking and the economy is slowing down as a result of the population shrinking or the workforce shrinking, I should say, at the moment. The workforce started shrinking 10 years ago. The, the inflection point on the population is happening around now. From now on, we'll see the Chinese population start to shrink. But the workforce is already shrinking. Um, and once the workforce is shrinking, um, it's very hard to bring about that shift. You know, how are you going to do it? You, you, you're going to... Um, close down. I mean, you want to close down your. If you want to satisfy the rest of the world, you're not just jump dumping cheap products. You want to close down your, you know, unprofitable factories yeah. that just um, that can't make a profit in their own right and can only export. But you know, it's very hard to get uh, people to spend more money if you're making lots of people redundant by closing down their factories. So uh, much easier to do when everything was rosy and growing. Much harder to do now. All these figures have gone into reverse. Absolutely. Well, look, Richard, uh, it's not a question that we're going to solve today, but I really do appreciate you spending uh, the time with us to give us those fascinating insights. That's Richard Spencer, China correspondent for The Times. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. News Talk, Mandy Johnston. After the break, we'll delve into the world of the woman behind Donald Trump as we discuss the life, times and whereabouts of Melania. Don't go anywhere. 
Pocharash Gunnusok, Shoi Mandy Johnston, August Anish. The 2024 US presidential campaign continues to gather momentum and there's one person who's been conspicuously absent from the campaign trail. Melania Trump is the former First Lady and she's enjoyed a much scaled back presence in contrast to her presence during the 2016 presidential campaign when she took a much more active role. But is this public or lack of public support uh, saying something about her disapproval or her indifference to Donald Trump's uh, second attempt to become President of the United States. Well, I wanted to find out a little bit more about her and where her priorities lie. And who better to tell me than Mary Jordan, who is the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the Washington Post and author of the excellent The Art of Her Deal. Mary, you're very welcome along to Taking Stock. Delighted to talk to you. Now, Mary, I'm listening to the book at the moment uh, that you wrote on this. It's called The Art of Our Deal. Very clever uh, title, can I say? Um, and you say in that book, in three decades as a correspondent working all over the world, I've often written about the reluctant and the reclusive, including the head of a Mexican drug cartel and Japanese princess, but nothing compared to trying to understand Melania. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience about trying to cover her and find out more about her? I think she is so complex because on the one hand, she was a model, right? She loves the camera. Um, I mean, her whole career, right, was to kind of, you know, coax the camera near her. She loved to be on the cover of magazines. Um, And she then gets in the White House. She has a platform and she doesn't, disappears, Mm. doesn't say a word. Um, She has two sides of her at all times, she doesn't like her husband. She gets mad at her husband. She stands beside him and is a huge asset to her husband. Um, and I think because she, you know, English is not um, her first language for sure. She's very reluctant because she doesn't, even though she's been in this country a long time, it's it's very hard for her to, A, public speak, but also it's in another language. So we don't hear from her. And that's why I spent three years kind of digging around with anybody who had come in contact with her to learn more about her. Mm. And did you find that easy to get people who knew her or who would speak on her behalf or to you about her? And again, you know, think of all the people that if you want to do a profile on Jill, Jill Biden, the first lady now, or Michelle, uh, you can find dozens of people. You can find people from their college years, mm. from when they worked, from their volunteer activities. You could probably put in one small or medium-sized bathroom all the people that really know Melania Trump. Yeah. Because... Um, and it's, I mean, I can f- say that with full confidence. She does not trust anybody and she likes to be by herself. Her main go-to person was her mother, who was really a remarkable woman. She was a factory worker in the old Yugoslavia. Um, and by all accounts, um, this kind of terrific, hardworking, good person. And Melania just leaned on her, trusted her, was... She was her best friend and she just passed away. So that's a big blow to her. Mm. But in the White House, Melania, like think of all the people in the White House. And she's up in the personal quarters with her mother and her son, Baron. And they're all speaking um, Slovenian. And and Donald is obviously (laughs) excluded from this. I wouldn't imagine he's proficient. 
Oh my God, the Secret Service would say that he would walk by and say, what are they saying? What are they saying? <laughs> it's just like this little bubble within this very public space. Yeah, she's often seen, I think, as quite a kind of, what's the word, like sedulous person and that she follows along. I mean, I remember those memes in 2016 and even after when Donald Trump was president, where she was sort of like characterized as someone who was coerced and, and, and held hostage. Um, what do you make of that kind of characterization of her? From, from my reading of your book, it doesn't quite fit with how she's coming across. I think it's completely wrong. I think that some people, you know, started that. They're like, oh, she needs a rescue. This poor person is somehow trapped. Uh, no, she's not. She, the title of the book is The Art of Her Deal. She made a deal with him. Mm. Um, and she is not one of those people that needs a lot of cuddles, you know, she, uh, and neither does he. Mm. They both get something out of this. Um, they, each of them live more separately than uh, pretty much any <laughs> public couple I know. Um, they have separate parts, wings of the house. They configure their house in Mar-a-Lago and in New York that they have, you know, spend enormous amount of times separate from each other and mm. then they every so often go out in public but they both get something out of each other you know i mean trump needed felt that a good-looking younger woman added to his image mm. and you know she her whole family has become american citizens with the help of donald trump and she's famous she's one of the very few handful of people in american history who's been in the White House as First Lady. Yeah, and I, look, she's she's done a lot on her own terms, things you wouldn't never have expected uh, from a First Lady before moving back to New York to raise her son when you would have expected her or, or you know, tradition would have expected her to, to be in the White House. She also, I learned from the book, uh, used the 2016 campaign as a way to renegotiate her prenup, which was helpful for her because she was suffering a lot of ignominy at the time because of his activities. But um, I just wanted to try and understand a little bit more about that lack of trust that you talked about a moment ago, where that came from, because by all accounts, she was raised in a loving family. Um, where do you think that stems from? You know, that is a great question. So I went to actually to Slovenia to talk about people that knew her when she was young, tried to talk to people she dated. Mm. And they all said that she had this most remarkable thing. She would, one guy that she knew when she was around 20, and she was really trying to break into the modeling world. And he helped her and they dated for a while. And then she was ready to move on. And she never once looked back. You know how, like, Cold. you and I and other people kind of talk to the people that you knew in, when you were in school. Mm. You know, you, you kind of, there's a continuity. She has a wall. She leaves Slovenia. She doesn't talk to anyone in Slovenia. She doesn't talk to her grade school friends or college friends, anyone she's dated. She just face forward, moving on. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, she's just a, a very different personality than than somebody that you normally see in politics because, mm. you know, the more the merrier. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just, I think it's a personality quirk uh, in a way. Uh, I talked to the housekeepers in her house. They say that she just sits in a room. She's at the computer. She likes to shop. She loves to read what's been written about her and um, her family. And she, by many, many accounts, uh, spends most of her time just thinking about her son. She has one one child, and uh, it's not easy to have his last name be Trump when half the country thinks he's a villain. 
and other people want him as president. So, mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm speaking with Mary Jordan, who's the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for The Washington Post and author of The Art of Her Deal. It's a book about Melania Trump. Um, just, we, we talked a little bit at the beginning about how important she was to Donald Trump uh, in 2016, or at least he felt it would be nice to have someone like her front-facing in the campaign and obviously the campaign managers felt she would be an asset to him. But she's missing now, Mary. Why is that? And what is going to happen there? I don't think there's any um, tours or planned appearances by her, but maybe you'd give us your assessment of why she's doing that now and whether or not you feel that will change. I think she's a strategic thinker um, and she knows just like Greta Garbo or some celebrity that doesn't come out much, that when, hold your fire, and when you come out, you make a bigger splash, right? If you're out and about everywhere, it's not such a big deal. Mm. So you're going to see her kind of in the summer at the convention. Um, and then, of course, the other thing is she doesn't like it. She, um, it took her months to get over a big blunder where she did come out and give a speech uh, in the last campaign, and then everyone you know, started mocking her because it looked word for word plagiarized from something that Michelle Obama, Obama had done. Yeah, that was, yeah, it was very, and it, it was really cringeworthy. Hit her hard. Yeah. Right. So she, she doesn't like to public speak. And then also I am, you know, she's very strategic about when she's going to come in. She's going to make a big grand entrance, like the runway model that mm. she is. Mm. And she just strikes you, or me anyway, as a lone figure or a lonely figure. And some people say, look, you know, who can be lonely when you've got all that money um, and and maybe all the power if, if you're looking at Donald Trump. But do you think she's a very isolated figure in all? And I think more isolated now because her main go-to person was her mother who just passed away. Mm. Um, she spends, she used to have one very good friend and they fell out because uh she felt that this this other woman felt that uh stephanie uh you know they used to have kids in common and talk about problems and everything and then uh stephanie was given a job in the white house and she felt stabbed by melania uh, and trump uh himself and felt like her best friend uh didn't come to her rescue and so she started blabbing about what a weird separate lives these people have. So now she doesn't have the best friend. Her mm. mom is gone. Uh, it's a tight, tight circle. I've been backstage with her before she goes and speaks on stage. And it's very different than other people who go on stage, right? You go back there, you know, you're, you're now practiced in the public eye. She does not speak to a soul. She just sits there. It's like she's in her own little world. Mm. Um, well, what would you say about her influence on him? You know, does she, when it comes to politics or things like that, would he listen to her? Does she have any influence on him in that way? Well, I'll tell you one story. When he was picking uh, the vice president, there were Chris Christie, the governor of uh, New Jersey, wanted it. There were a whole bunch of people that wanted it. And he feels Trump also is very distrustful of people. He thinks everyone wants something from him. Mm. And so for the final decision, he brought like the last, the finalists in and wanted Melania to be there to meet them. Like The Apprentice, and, Mary, was it? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and Melania said, don't give it to this guy because he's too ambitious. He's going to be 
if 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 this guy, this candidate becomes it, he's going to want your job. Give it to Mike Pence mm. because he'll, you know, he's, he's no, no threat. He's no competition. <laughs> he's, no he's not going to steal your limelight. Um, and he, so we, she, he pulls her in for these gut checks because mm. he feels that she, in the end, they share a son together that I think Melania's on my side where he doesn't necessarily trust a lot of other people. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned Chris Christie. I read a quote from him, what he really doesn't like her. So uh, there's no love loss there. Just um, back to something you said at the very beginning of this about um, her image and, you know, she was a former model and she hasn't revealed herself in the same way that maybe Michelle Obama and other um, first ladies have. Just looking at the figures um, of things like the, the joint book deal with the Obamas, 60 million euro uh, or 60 million dollars. They were uh, reportedly paid for that. Melania has never done that, has never kind of revealed that side of herself. But she is fundraising in a different way with NTFs and selling images online for, for Donald Trump's campaign. So it, it, it is possibly, you know, that's all she's comfortable with revealing about herself is that, you know, the facade and nothing else. She is very, very interested in money. Mm. Um, and I think that uh, at the heart of her deal is that she likes nice things. Um, and she, you know, maybe she's doing it a different way because it's harder for her to write books right now. But I think in the end, you are going to get a book from her mm. um, when this is all over. Uh, I definitely think that, you know, I was talking to some people who have known her in the old days and they said, you know, she, she grew up very poor, right? I mean, her mom worked in the factory and her dad was a chauffeur. She worked, you know, you know, it's very hard to be a model. And she wasn't at the top. She wasn't any kind of a supermodel, right? She would be doing the runways and she would earn a, earn kind of an hourly wage. And then all of a sudden she's on Park Avenue in New York in the Trump sure. uh, world. And so I, I do think that you're going to be seeing like Melania art or Baron art. And I think she and Baron are going to team up. I wouldn't be surprised if they go into real estate in Europe or something. But I mean, I know that that's where her mind is. Okay, so that's what you think is next for her. You think we will see her on the campaign trail, though, before this election campaign is over? Right. Very limited, big uh, moments, I think, because she doesn't like it. Um, But you'll see her. Well, that's interesting that you say also she'll have a book. So, Mary, if she has that book with you, we'll definitely be calling you back. But for now, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today and taking us through that fascinating world of Melania Trump. That was Mary Jordan, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for The Washington Post and author of The Art of Her Deal. Thank you very much, Mary. Delight to talk to you. Thanks. And after the break, we look at why Ireland now seems to be the perfect hub for global drug cartels. Fotograph on News Talk Show Mandy Johnson, August Anish, as we turn our attention to the issue of the international drugs trade, take a quick listen to this. We are seen to these organised crime groups as uh, a wealthy country, an affluent place, and that is shown even in terms of uh, the cocaine use that there is in Ireland. The cocaine use is proportionate to the prosperity of a nation, and, and therefore then we are a target. But we have really good people who are out to stop them, and it's been said already, to gain evidence, bring them to justice, uh, and actually break down those, those crime groups. The biggest issue now for us 
In comparison even to 20 years ago, it's just how international crime has got. It is big business and unfortunately, as an island, we're seen as an affluent place and a place to target them. Now, that might read like a script from Breaking Bad. Last week's seizure of almost 33 million euro worth of crystal meth just showed that Ireland is now part of a global market organised by South American drug cartels. But are we looking at Ireland becoming a bigger gateway and a hub for traffickers from these cartels? Or is it a sign that the intelligence systems and the detection systems are now actually working? Well, I'm delighted to be joined now by John Mooney from the Sunday Times, who's been following this issue for many a year. John, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Hi there, Mandy. Now, John, last Sunday you were writing extensively about this uh, and we'll come to the issues of the seizure and all that in a moment. But maybe you might uh, just talk us through why Ireland is a hub and why now? So Ireland is just one of many countries that are being used or potentially being used by South American organised crime groups to um, deliver drugs into land drugs in Europe and then possibly re-export them abroad. So this is part of a much wider problem. This is a part of an issue whereby you're looking at overproduction of cocaine in South America. So, for example, in Colombia, I think it's gone up from 1,300 tonnes to 1,800 or thereabouts uh, last year or possibly the year before, according to the UN. So there's been, there is a huge overproduction of cocaine. And these cartels usually have always traditionally targeted North America and Canada. They are now diverting their attention to Europe in a much more... Uh, streamlined way, but they're also attempting to smuggle vast quantities of drugs into the Southern Hemisphere, where the markets in Australia and New Zealand are really the land of milk and honey for drug traffickers. The street price of cocaine in those countries is far greater than what you pay for on the streets of Europe or in North America. So there are a number of different issues going on here. So by transporting and shipping drugs to Europe uh, and to say somewhere like Ireland, if it's re-exported from Ireland, it's repackaged, so to speak, in a European shipping container, which doesn't attract the same type of its security attention than a, a container coming from South America would or indeed uh, parts of Central America. So so that is, there are two reasons why uh, this is happening now. Mm. Uh, there's a third reason is, is that some of these cartels have people, have set up um, uh, contacts on the ground in most European countries. The Calais cartel and uh, uh, organisations like that going back into the 80s and 90s always had representatives in Europe. But with global travel and everything else and people uh, with immigrant populations moving around the world, um, those connections have become multifaceted. There's lots of people now involved in this business and these activities. So they have networks literally everywhere. And indeed, we have uh, domestic criminal groups that are trying to continuously reach out to them and they can communicate with them and liaise with them, etc. And these organisations, as, as I've stated, they have a lot of product that they're trying to offload and are more than happy to uh, risk or start sending uh, mega consignments into countries that... The, typically wouldn't have been on their radar. So it's a number 
of different issues. It's a conflation of interests that are leading to this. Now, that brings me on to your next question, whether uh, our intelligence services are working or whether we've got better. Our intelligence services have always worked efficiently. Um, Confronting drug trafficking is like a game of whack-a-mole you, you can never eradicate it. So years back, politicians and justice ministers and people like that would often say the war on drugs. There's a much more mature approach to this amongst modern policing um, and intelligence services. Um, they realise that they're trying to manage a problem and curtail it. They also act in, in a, as an, a part of an alliance in Europe as opposed to acting unilaterally to take on these groups. So the guards are believe it or not, are as concerned about seizing or providing information to their partner agencies to allow the interception of drugs, say, off the coasts of uh, Senegal, as they would be in providing intelligence that would possibly lead to a drug seizure off the coast of France or something like that. Mm, So mm. they all all work together now as part of uh, alliances in much the same way that European intelligence services deal with uh, Russian intelligence services and Chinese and trying to confront them and stop their activities. No country can act alone in policing this and trying to stop these activities. They all have to do it as a unified body. So when you get that sort of approach, you do see more uh, seizures as a result of that. But it, it it's an unquantifiable industry because it's unregulated and it's illicit and it's underground. Yeah, and of course, it's always the unknown unknowns to use that Donald Rumsfeld phrase. How do we know what is actually slipping through the system? But for sure, as you say there, the the joined up policing um, is is in action and and, and it's working across Europe um, and also here in Ireland. I want to just go back, John, to the the three reasons really that that you mentioned at the outset. The mass production, expanding their markets. um, Has any business would do. The second thing is Ireland's not necessarily high on a watch list when we're talking about these containers and, and moving them on. And then the relationships and connections. So I'm going to take the, the first bit first, really. Um, this is a business model, right, for these cartels. Um, they're operating in, as you say, America and Canada, and now they're just moving out into the world. Could you just take us through how sophisticated a cartel like the Sinaloa cartel, which has been in the news a lot recently because of Irish connections, could you just talk us through how sophisticated uh, their business model might be and how large an organisation like that is? Because I think we tend to think of them as small family units, but this is big business. Well, they're, they're very big business. So they have a vertical structure in terms of their command and their hierarchy. Um, they have probably the guts of about 3,000 people leading it in terms of people that make decisions, organise uh, money laundering. So these would be senior figures in it. There was some research done by colleagues in uh, the United States and they the, the, that research suggests that there's probably the guts of 185,000 people employed by that criminal organisation in one role or, or, or another. And that ranges from people who are uh, possibly collecting cocoa leaves in the mountainous regions of various parts of South America to uh, convert to manufacture uh, cocaine to people involved in making decisions, uh, you know, maybe purchasing um, containers, 
arranging freight, setting up front companies, etc., to to um, you know export um, uh, their product around the world. So it's a pretty big. Uh, powerful but highly entrepreneurial criminal organization. It should be stated when people, they, they, these groups engage in horrendous violence mm. in parts of South America. They have, they're a real national security threat. Uh, for example, Ecuador is in the, is, 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 is almost collapsing. Its uh, democratic uh, institutions are under huge pressure and political assassinations have become almost like a weekly event there because of uh, uh, the Sinola cartel and its uh, associations on the ground there. There's always, I've spoken to various experts on this, and there's always a golden period where cocaine seeps into a country where all the gangs involved are making so much money that they don't engage in the type of violence that people may have watched on some Netflix series, mm. etc. And then there comes a point where one side decides to take out the rest um, or maybe take on established political institutions, uh, corrupt the police, corrupt the military, etc., etc. So they do that uh, very efficiently in on the South American continent. What we have seen, though, is in other parts of the world, they don't engage in that type of activity for the simple reason is we don't have police forces that are as open to uh, corruption and influence as maybe they are in some South American uh, countries. And that's for historic and cultural reasons. Also, uh, political institutions and customs organizations, police and the military across Europe are very robust mm. and are, are is, Democracies are well-structured to confront these sort of problems. So we have seen an increased level of violence, for example, in Belgium around Antwerp and around Rotterdam, where there's port employees coming under horrendous pressure from organised crime groups that are representative of some of these cartels. But that is localised violence. I mean, I have to say, if there was a politician murdered in Europe by a cartel, the response that they would have to, the, to that act is very, very different to what the, the response they would face in a country like Ecuador or Colombia, where um, unfortunately people have all almost not, they don't certainly don't accept it. But they're conditioned but, to oh, it, really. Yeah. To, yeah. to, to deal with, to, to accept it maybe in a different sort of way or yeah. they're conditioned to where it's almost normal to them. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks, Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm speaking to John Mooney of the Sunday Times. John, the, the seizure that happened a couple of weeks ago down in Cork, you mentioned earlier that um, the product is passing through Ireland, but I'm just trying to understand it was crystal meth um, and it weighed, I think, almost half a tonne. And when you, you think that that, and I've heard reports that that is a, combi a combination, it's as big as a combination of all the other seizures that went before, where was that destined for? And what state was that product in when it came into Ireland? Did something happen to it here or was it just simply being moved from a container uh, and onwards to another country? Well, Vandy, I won't go into the specifics of that raid because there are people before the courts in relation to that and to do so would, would, would be prejudicial to their case. But what I can say is that the Garda intelligence on a general level now believes that there are large consignments of drugs coming into this country that are far too big to, to supply the Irish domestic market. And as I so, understand it, crystal meth isn't something that is in the Irish market itself. 
To a great extent. It is, but not in any substantial way. Um, And crystal meth is made in laboratories. It is processed. Um, Certainly the seizures that have happened here are crystal meth. They're not precursor chemicals that are used to manufacture it. Mm. Um, So it's a drug that is used by um, people usually who usually have extreme addictions and extreme health problems. And when they use that particular type of drug, it causes further further deterioration in their health, both their physical health and their mental health. One of the other reasons you felt that this might be happening now is that we're not a country that's on a particular watch list when it comes to um, exporting into other countries. Do you think that will change as a result of these type of seizures now? Well, I, I for the piece I wrote in the Sunday Times last weekend, I interviewed Seamus Boland, who is a detective superintendent in charge of the Garda's Nash, uh, Organised Crime and Drugs Bureau. And he kind of made the point that Guard Intelligence can literally predict some of this. That w- what's happening now is not a surprise to anyone. It had been predicted long ago and there are various uh, plans and measures being put in place to confront that. So... Again, what the, 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 the response of the Irish state in these matters is to intercept as much as this and they change their orientation of their surveillance systems and intelligence gathering systems to target profile ships or ships that would fit the profile of drug trafficking. So we've seen some of these major interceptions in recent years and that serves two purposes. First of all, every time there is a serious consignment of drugs seized, it's usually accompanied by the seizure of a ship. And that acts as a deterrent to the group insofar as they'll say, well, this route, this smuggling route Mm. has been identified. So there's no point in, in investing further in this. It should be stated though, and I think this is really important for the listeners to understand, the vast majority of drugs entering this state aren't arriving on big ships sailing across the Atlantic from South America and coming up the West Coast of Africa. They're being brought in in container shipments that are mixed in with other types of legitimate uh, produce that are coming here. So what happens is they go to Rotterdam, they'll go to uh, Antwerp and they're re-exported sometimes into the UK where they're collected brought into Ireland and re-exported again to confuse their origins. That might sound, and and when they get into back into Europe again, sometimes they're exported to the Southern Hemisphere. That may may sound like an illogical Mm. route to take, but if you're a drug trafficker, it's a perfectly logical thing to do because you're you're disguising the, the... the original source of that container. And that's why you need lots of people changing the product from one company to another to disguise its its origins. Well, definitely look a very complex matrix of logistics and connections. We didn't get to the connections part today, but maybe we'll have you back another day, John, to, to go through those relationships and connections that exist. But for now, that was John Mooney from The Sunday Times. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock, folks. Just a reminder that while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. 
Next week, we'll be diving into the wonderful world of social media influencers. Or is it? Because revenue are suddenly taking notice. So we're going to have a couple of experts on to talk us through what's happening there. I want to thank all of today's guests for their time and their very valuable insights. Thank you also to the producers of Taking Stock, John Fardy and Simon Keane, with Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo De Silva-Scott on sound. If you've got any comments on today's items, you can always email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. Anton Savage is coming up next with all of your Sunday newspapers. But from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. Sloan Agus Banacht. Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Brought to you by PWC on News Talk.